Titus chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading tonight in verse 1, just for context's sake. We've come as far as verse 5. But as for you, Paul speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper or fitting for sound doctrine, that the older men, how old were the older men? 50 and above. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, and the old Older women, likewise, that they be reverent, notice that word again, in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men, that's where we're picking up tonight, to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for this, this evening and the chance tonight to open up your word with these men, to consider, God, what you would say to us as men here in this fellowship, older men, younger men, in-between men, that you have called for such a time as this in the life, in this season of Calvary Vista And so, God, I pray that you would minister to our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you, God, might do a work in this place tonight. And I also pray, Lord, that after the study, as we have our panel discussion, Lord, that you would bless it, that you would uh, work in and through um, each of the guys that we'll be sharing. And so we give you this time this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last few weeks, we have camped out here in Titus chapter 2, and the theme of our study has been on the idea that sound doctrine results in or leads to sound behavior. And remember, we talked about that the word sound means healthy. It speaks of that which brings life that which brings healing to that which is broken. So we could say that healthy doctrine results in healthy behavior, which then results in a healthy church. And that's really what we're desiring, right? To see God move and work and do that within us. And we started by looking at Paul's admonition to the older men, 
And then last week, we looked at his admonition, his exhortation to the older women. And in both groups, Paul uses that word reverent, that they would be reverent in their behavior. And we noted last week that that word reverent, I thought this was just so interesting. Um, It's a word that means consecrated. It's a word that means set apart. It's a word that means holy. And we noted that that very word was used in describing the whole temple complex. That the whole temple complex was considered reverent in the sense that it was consecrated, holy, set apart. Or we could say that the whole temple complex had a unique calling and purpose in the kingdom of God. And so when he says that to the older men and the older women, that they are to be reverent, that they're to be consecrated, that he's saying, you need to understand that you, older men and women, have a unique purpose and calling in the family of God and in the kingdom of God. And I think that's something that is really, really um, important for us to embrace as older, the older men, the older women here, that we have a calling as older men and women to pave the way for ministry, for service, for godly living to the young men and women in the church. Well, tonight we come to verse 6. Well, Paul brings his attention to the younger men. And notice how he starts. He says, likewise. So in other words, in the same way that you are admonishing the older men and women to be concerned about their walks, likewise, the younger men. So he says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things. Now this is interesting because to the older men and the older women, Paul said, teach, teach them, speak to them. But to the younger men, he says, exhort them. Uses a completely different word. What's the difference and why does he use this word? Well, the word exhort means to urge, to plead, to summon. So there's a little bit of an urgency in this word. But what's really, really interesting, and I don't want you to miss this, is the word exhort is parakaleo in the Greek. Okay? That sound familiar to anybody? You see, that, that's uh, taken from the very same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit, the Paracletus, he's called. And it's that same, it's from that same word, in the, and it means to come alongside, or one called alongside to help. And so what he's telling us here, and what we need to catch in this, is that he's saying to the, those, the, the older guys, he's saying to Titus in exhorting the younger men, it's not just telling them what to do, but it's coming alongside them. It's coming alongside them and walking with them in it. Remember when we had our first panel discussion a couple of weeks ago, that was one of the things that Aaron and Tyler were telling us, that the younger men are desiring is that we would come alongside them that we would come alongside them and walk with them. Not just telling them what to do, but showing them how it is to be done, being those examples 
to them. And so the, the fact that he's saying this, it, it, he's saying that we're to come alongside them in showing them and walking with them and what it looks like to be sober-minded. And the fact that exhort is in the present imperative also means that this is to be a continual action. Or we could put it this way, it's to be a habitual lifestyle. So it's to be the lifestyle, the heart of those who are older in the church to want to come alongside those who are younger and walk with them. To be an example to them. To have relationship with them. To spend our our life with them. And this is so important that we catch this. Last month, I've entered into a a new ministry um, at this kind of season in my life where I got together with um, six pastors, and these are all guys that are much younger than I am, who have been pastoring their churches for 10 years or less as senior pastors. And um, I got together with them for three days to just talk with them about ministry, talk with them about life, talk with them about marriage, just to, to, to walk with them, to come alongside them. And we are committed, we've committed ourselves to meeting uh, three more times over the next year for three days each time. And in the meantime, we've been communicating. I've been communicating with, with them, um, you know, on almost an every other week basis and just, you know, being available, just being available to share. Um, I'm going to several of their churches in the next year to just come and meet with their leadership teams and meet with their staff. And, and it's that idea of, you know, these are guys that God is calling me to come alongside in that way. And that's what God calls all of us to do, to come alongside those who are younger and to mentor them, to pour into them. And, and sometimes it might not even be somebody who's younger in age. It might just be somebody who's younger in the faith. You know, when I was in Oregon, I just had a chance this past weekend to um, go up and be at the church that I planted 31 years ago, and it was such a blessing. It was so neat to meet so many of the new people that are there, but also see so many of the people who were there in the very beginning. And there was one particular guy who, the first couple years that I was there, I, I discipled him. And he actually was a guy who was older than me, but he was because I was only 27 when I planted the church. But he was older than me, but he was younger in the faith. And so I spent two years just discipling him, meeting with him on a weekly basis, just walking through things with him. I'd have a hospital call. I'd call him, hey, why don't you come with me? And after two years, and he became one of our elders in the church, um, I started to meet with some, some other guys. And he got a little bit hurt because I wasn't spending the time that I was spending with him. And he, you know, I I found one day he just seemed really sad. And I was like, you know, what's going on? He goes, I just miss hanging out with you. And I had to say, and I said, Paul, but here's the thing. Here's what you need to understand is you now need to do with some of the other guys in the church what you and I did over the last two years. You know, that's the, that's the, how it works, you know, and that's the idea is coming alongside those who are, are younger and, 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 and the, the key is that we're, it's always reproducing, 
Always reproducing that life. So the older guys are to walk with the younger guys, showing them how to be sober-minded. Now, sober-minded means to be sensible, clear-headed, not reckless. You know, there's a book called Over the Edge, and it's about how the most vulnerable group at the Grand Canyon are younger men because they think they're invincible. And so they end up getting careless. And it's been the the most amount of people who have fallen over the edge and have died at the Grand Canyon have been young guys. Young guys who just think, you know, I can get out here on the edge. And and, and they end up, you know, getting killed. They end up falling to their their death because they think they're invincible. And so our job as older guys is to help the younger guys be sensible. To be clear-headed, but listen, but to do it in a way where they don't lose their zeal. Or we don't quench their zeal. And that can be a challenge. Because young guys often have great zeal. They're excited. I mean, they want to change the world. And to be honest with you, I love that. I'd rather have guys that want to change the world than guys that don't want to do anything. I'd rather have guys around here that are like, man, you know, what what can we do? God wants to do great things, you know, than guys who are just comfortable and just kind of, you know, content with the status quo. But we have to be careful, though, because zeal without experience can be dangerous. In fact, we're told in Proverbs 19, verse 2, it is dangerous to have zeal without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily makes poor choices. So we who are older need to be asking ourselves and thinking about how can we come alongside them, help them to be clear-headed without quenching their zeal? How can we help them avoid the pitfalls? You know, years ago, I had a youth pastor who came to me, and in his zeal, he said to me, he said, if you would hire six interns to work with me, I'll start Bible studies on all six campuses here in North County. It was zealous. It was ambitious. It was a great, you know, declaration. I was like, wow, you know, this guy's got some vision, you know, to to do this. And I love seeing our guys be on high school campuses because when I was the youth pastor here, I was on high school campuses and and I knew how effective it was. I knew how great it could be for reaching the lost. In fact, I actually, when I was the youth pastor here, I did Bible studies on all six campuses here in in our area all by myself. And I did it every single week for an entire year. And so one day I'd be at Vista. One day I'd be at Rancho. One day I went to San Marcos. Uh, one day I went to El Camino, and then on the same day, I think it was Friday, I went to Oceanside and Carlsbad because their lunches were um, staggered to where I could do both schools on the same day. And it was, it was effective. God used it. We had students coming to all of those studies who got saved and ended up coming to our youth group from all of those schools. And I did that for a whole year. And I got to be honest with you, it almost killed me. 
And part of the reason was is I wasn't smart enough to do the same Bible study at all different all the you know every school. So every school I did a different Bible study. So I was doing you know six Bible studies a week at the schools and then two here. So eight different Bible studies a week and and it was it was dumb you know zealous but it wasn't very smart you know and um, but it but God used it. God worked in it. But the following year, I heard a message about being sharpshooters. And the analogy was given in this message that it said some ministries and some you know, churches have a tendency to, they're, they're like a shotgun blast. They're going out and making a lot of little tiny dents in a lot of areas but the guy who was teaching this said, but I think, you know, God is looking today for pastors and leaders and churches that will be more like more sharpshooters that are going to make a big dent in one or two areas. And so I felt led after hearing that and praying to just focus on one school, the school that was, was doing the, you know, that really had kind of seemed like God was moving the most, and that was Rancho Buena Vista. And so the following year, we did one Bible study on Vista, and then I also was asked to lead the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group, um, excuse me, on Rancho, on campus at Rancho, and God bless both of them. The, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group grew to be the biggest one in San Diego, and we ended up that year having 60 kids whose parents didn't come to our church, whose um, many of their parents weren't saved, ended up, started coming to our youth group on Wednesday nights. And, and, and our youth group, I mean, just really, really grew from, from that point and from that time. And so, so I had some experience. I had some, some, some knowledge of, you know, what campus ministry could be like and how God could use it. And so I said to this youth pastor, didn't want to quench his zeal, but I said, tell you what, how about we do this? I said, why don't you get one study going on one school? Really, really good. Really, really strong. And then when that one gets going really, really good and really, really strong, we'll bring on an intern part-time to assist you there, and then you can go and start one at another school. And let's kind of do it that way, just kind of one at a time rather than trying to do this shotgun you know, thing. And, um, and he liked that idea, um, but in reality, he ended up, he didn't get anything started in any of the schools. And tried and nothing really panned out. There was zeal, but there wasn't follow-through. And I'm so glad you know, that we didn't just go, okay, yeah, let's do that, because we've had some times here, in fact, when I first got here, we had a lot of guys, you know, that were on staff that had nothing to do, and were just kind of sitting around, and so I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to repeat that, you know, see that happen um, again, so he had great zeal, but he just needed to be pointed in the right direction. And I'll be honest, there's been times here where um, the approach that Steve and I might have to a young guy with a big idea, even though, you know, as we're hearing the big idea in our minds, we're thinking, I don't think that's going to work. But because of his heart, you know, the young guy's heart and his zeal, we say, you know what? 
go for it. Go for it. Let's just see. Let's just see what God might want to do. And then we'll check in a week or two later and just, you know, hey, how's it going? And, and if he asks for advice, we'll give it. Oftentimes, though, you know, zealous guys, you know, they, they got their plan. They got their vision. They don't do that. Um, so we just sit back, watch, cheer them on. Like, come on, go. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. And we're hoping, even though in the beginning we're like, I don't know if this is going to work, but, but we're hoping that we're going to be surprised. Isn't it awesome to be surprised by God? You know, when God just kind of blows your mind, like we're hoping, okay, my God, this would be awesome if this, this happens and works. But if it doesn't, and it's something that ends up failing, we see it as an opportunity to have a teaching moment of how to maybe do it better next time. And I think that's how we walk with guys, to help them be sober-minded. It's part of that mentoring process to help them become clear-headed. Guys with zeal, so, they're, so that they're guys not just with zeal, but it's zeal coupled with knowledge. And so the older men are to walk with the younger men, teaching them how to be sober-minded, and that's going to take building relationships with them. Because, listen, they're not going to... I think this was one of the things um, Aaron Sabio mentioned on the panel. He was quoting Pastor Steve, who says this all the time. People don't, know how, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so that's the part of learning to walk with them. As you walk with them, as you spend time with them, as you come alongside them, as you take them to lunch and coffee, that suddenly they begin to realize, this guy really, really cares for me. I'm interested in what he has to say. And so this is the, this idea of exhorting, coming alongside them in that type of way. And it's going to take a willingness on the part of the older men to want to build relationships. And it's going to take a willingness on the part of the younger men to want to be mentored. Well, after addressing the young men, Pastor Titus, um, he, he points his attention now to Pastor Titus himself, who was also a younger man, younger than Paul. Paul referred to him as one of his sons in the faith. And what he says here is great stuff for anybody, any of you who aspire to be in full-time ministry, or any of you who maybe are feeling like God's maybe calling you to be, you know, serving away as an elder, these are things that God wants to be in your life. He says in verse 7, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence and incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. The first thing he says is that his life would be a pattern of good works, and the word pattern used here specifically speaks of an impression or a mold. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That your life would make an impression. That it would be like a mold, a copy, a molded copy of the original. And so the idea is to have a visible behavior. It's the habits of, of a life that were to be visible and tangible. Remember Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth, but let your life be a pattern to those who believe. 
In other words, even though you are young, Timothy, you are to set an example is what he's saying. And he's saying a similar thing here to Titus. Your life is to be an impression. It's to be like a mold of what it means to follow Jesus. And then he speaks specifically about his teaching, that in his doctrine or in his teaching, he would show integrity and reverence and incorruptibility. And again, remember when Paul spoke to Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 2.15, Timothy, you be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some translations, I think it's the King James, that says study to show yourself approved. One who can rightly divide the word of truth in your teaching. The New Living Translation puts it this way, let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. In other words, you need to practice what you preach. Now, I'll be honest with you, growing up at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, when I was in junior high and high school, I had some youth leaders who sometimes crossed the line in this. And it was well-intentioned. They were trying to be relatable, but sometimes the you know, relatableness could turn into carnality, and sometimes it you know, just turned into you know, kind of goofiness, and it was that which was irreverent. And I remember two of our, our youth guys used to do this at our camps. They would do this, this skit like every year. It was like the tradition. They called it the toothpaste skit. And this is kind of what it went like. It was like a toothpaste commercial, glory toothpaste. And uh, so the first guy, he'd start off with a toothbrush, toothpaste, and a glass of water, and he would brush his teeth and talk about how the toothpaste was so great for making your teeth bright. And, and, uh, and then he'd you know, take a swig of the water and spit everything back into the water. Well, then the second guy, and put the toothbrush in the, in the cup. Well, the second guy would then come out, and he would take the same toothbrush out of that water, and he'd start you know, brushing his teeth. And, you know, oh, it's great for deodorant. He'd do his armpits, you know. And, and it would go on. Like five or six different guys would, you know, do this. And uh, each one of them taking this is really gross, taking the same, you know, cup and swig and, and everything. And well, when I was a senior in high school and uh, we just had a brand new uh, youth pastor and the tradition was at our, at our high school summer camp was that every single Thursday we had a talent show. And so it was just kind of a break in the thing, and it was like a talent show, and the kids would get up and do different things. So me and my buddies, we were all seniors, and we, you know, the, the new youth pastor was coming in, and he was told, these are the leaders in the group. You know, these are, these are your guys, you know, that you can look to, you know, to kind of set the pace. And so we get up there, and we decide that we're going to do the, the toothpaste like it's never been done before. You know, we're going to do the commercial. Now, I will say, because I, I am kind of smart, I was first, okay? <laughs> I was the first guy. But I'll tell you, I mean, the second guy had ketchup in his mouth, so he's talking about how it's great for bleeding gums. And, and by the time it got to the last guy, it was like a McDonald's strawberry shake. I mean, it was like thick. And, he, and the last guy drinks the whole thing, okay? So, I mean, just really disgusting, all right? <laughs> really, really bad. And um, so our new youth pastor, a little Italian guy by the name of Richard Semino, He's sitting back there just 
gasping like he can't believe um, what he's witnessing. He has all his you know, friends from his band that came up, and he's like, these are the leaders in the group, I've been told. You know? And we get up there and just... So after it was over, he, he got on our faces. He made us go out and apologize to the whole camp for you know, being so disgusting. And I'll tell you, I was ticked. I was ticked off. I was like, who does this little Italian guy think he is, you know, to, to do this? I mean, our, our youth guys have been doing this for years, and this was the best one ever. I mean, that's what I was thinking, you know. And I literally, I walked out on the stage, and I said to one of the other guys, I said, I go, you did the talk, and I, I, I'm, I'm too mad. And I just sat there, just my head down, just scaling. As soon as he said, as soon as we were done, I walked off the stage. I walked straight to my room. I was a senior. I had driven my car up there, and I was like, out of here. I was like, I'm out of here. I'm done with Calvary Chapel. Who's this little guy think he is? You know, and I was ticked. That morning, we had a Bible study on how all things are lawful, but all things don't edify. And so I'm sitting there in my room up at Twin Peaks, and I'm talking to God, and I'm going, God, I don't get this. What's going on? Who's this guy I think he is? And why did he, you know, make you, why is he so serious, you know? And, and the Lord just spoke to me, reminded me of that study. And he said, Rob, if you would have asked me, Lord, should we do that skit tonight? I would have said no. It's not going to be edifying. And I was like, oh, okay. A couple of minutes later, one of the guys comes in and he said, uh, hey, Richard wants to see you. And um, so I get up and I walk to the thing. Now the talent show's over. Richard's sitting in the sanctuary and I come and I sit down next to him and, and he says this to me. I've said this to my own son before. He says, hey, I want to apologize to you. Not for what I did, because you guys needed to be rebuked. That was disgusting. And he said, you know, and I cannot picture Jesus and the disciples doing that skit and Jesus being the last guy drinking that cup. He said, so you, that, you guys needed to be rebuked, but the way that I did it, he actually got so in my face, because I was the first guy off stage, he pushed me up against the wall and got right in my face. Like I was the only guy. Like he thought... He was right. I was the one that thought it all up, and I think he knew that. So he was like, you know, getting on in, in my in my case. And he just said, I, "I need to. I'm I'm sorry, not for what I did, but the way that I did it. And I want you to forgive me." I started crying. He started crying, and we have been friends now, very very good friends for like forty years. <laughs> And he has been um, a mentor in, in my life. And, um, and so, but it's, you know, it's interesting, though, because this idea of, you know, we're, our, our, our life needs to match our teaching. And it wasn't. You know, that wasn't. It wasn't in the youth guys that I had. And so Richard kind of took that to a, a whole nother level. And um, in my life and in the life of our group, where suddenly, you know, we, we took things a little bit more seriously. And God purged out a lot of that carnality.
The next thing that, that Paul mentions here is that Titus would be sound in his speech. And again, that word sound is words that build up, words that heal, rather than words that tear down. And he's talking here not so much about his preaching, but about his speech, how he talks with others. And I'll be honest with you, there was a time when I was a young man there at Calvary um, Costa Mesa, and it was during that time I was now serving, I was in college, I was serving in the uh, ministry there in the high school group with Richard, and me and my friends, we were reading the Puritans, and so we were really getting caught up in the holiness, holiness movement. And we started thinking, like, you know, getting kind of prideful. Like, everybody around us wasn't as spiritual as we were. You know, I went from toothpaste skit to you know, now being a Pharisee. I mean, that's where, where it had come, like, in three years. And, um, and me and my friends, for about three, four months, we would get together, and we literally would find ourselves just talking about Pastor Chuck, who was so gracious, he was so into grace, and how Chuck did not know what he was doing. And if he, you know, like if we were the ones running this church, you know, we would, you know, this would be a much more holy place. And here we are, a bunch of college guys who live at our parents' house, eat our parents' food, have part-time jobs, part-time going to school, part-time involved in ministry, and think we have all the answers. And I tell you, I am to this very day so ashamed of how stupid, how immature, how prideful that was. So ashamed of that behavior. It wasn't speech that was sound and healthy. and It was, it was that which, which was tearing down. Like we had, didn't have a clue. And I'll tell you, over the years, I've been the recipient of the same type of talk of young men around here, you know, talking about me in that same kind of way behind my back. And to be honest, yeah, that's grieving, but I'll tell you this. I'm able to give them a lot of grace because I did the same stupid thing when I was young. In my own pride. Guys, listen, it is much better to be men that have a reputation for building up rather than tearing down. Men who sharpen others and help others to see Jesus. And notice the reason for his exhortation there at the end of verse 8 where he says, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed and have nothing evil to say of you. Here's what he's saying. That your conduct would be so good and so Christ-like and so refreshing that your adversaries would only have good things to say. It's like somebody you work with saying this, you know, I don't believe what he believes, but I sure like that guy. And I love having him around. He's an asset to our company. He's an asset to this place because of the way that your speech builds up others. Well, finally, Paul's going to end this section on how sound doctrine results in sound behavior by talking to slaves, or we could say today, employees. Look at verse 9. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, 
not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. Real quickly, I want to just point out five things that are to mark the conduct of a slave or an employee, today we would say. Number one, he's to be obedient. And the idea there is that he would be submitted um, to those he is working under. That he would be somebody who is a team player. Somebody who is um, good at following instructions. This word was used of soldiers who were putting themselves under the command of their commanding officer. And so it's placing yourself under the leadership of someone. But catch this. It was the slave's obligation to be obedient. So why would he even say this? Why would he tell them to be obedient? Because he's not so much talking to them about what they're to do, but the attitude with which they're to do it. That they're to have a good attitude in their submission and in their obedience. They're to have a good attitude in uh, the way that they would conduct themselves. We're to have good attitudes as employees. I love this verse as it relates to this subject. We're told in Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24, that whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, you're doing, you go to work tomorrow, you're not working for a paycheck, you're not working for your boss, you're working for Jesus. That's how we need to go to work. And that's why I always say that I think that Christians should be the best workers in every single company. Because we're the ones working for Jesus. Before I got into ministry, I worked at um, a grocery store. And I was volunteering in ministry, and I was involved involved in a lot at Calvary Costa Mesa. So when I filled out the application, on my application it had all the different times I couldn't work. And the guy literally is looking at my application and he says, I see there's a lot of places, a lot of days on here, a lot of times on here that you can't work. When can you work? And I said, anytime that isn't on there, I'm available. And then I said this to him, if you give me a chance, I'll be the best worker in, your, in this whole place. Now, I wasn't saying that to be prideful. I wasn't trying to be prideful. But I was saying that because I had adopted this mentality, I'm working for Jesus. And so I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to work as if he was my boss. And so I knew that I was going to be the hardest working guy there. So he literally looks at the the paper, looks at me, and he says, all right, hotshot, I'll give you a chance. And he did. And in three months, he promoted me ahead of like 15 people because of how hard I was working, not because, you know, I was, it was, it wasn't me. It was the, I was saying, I'm going to, no one else, everybody else was working for a paycheck. I was working for the Lord. And so that was my motivation. I think that's the way that we're supposed to, you know, approach this. The second thing he says is that we're to be well-pleasing in all things. And this refers to an attitude of cheerful service. That we're pleasing, agreeable, that you want your boss to be thinking, you know, I'm so glad that I hired this guy. Not, man, I wish I wouldn't have hired this guy. And now he's in the union and I can't fire him. It's going to be so hard. And you know, No, no, you, you want your boss to be like, I'm so glad that this guy is a part of 
our team. He's a joy to be around. Number three, not answering back or not argumentative. It's being respectful. And the idea here is literally connected to the behavior of a child that talks back to its parents. Don't be like that. Don't be like a kid being adults. Also, I think this um, says and, and speaks to don't get caught up in bad mouthing the boss. You know, in every work environment that I've ever been a part of, there are those who just want to bad mouth the leadership or bad mouth the bosses. And Paul is instructing these Christian brothers and sisters don't get caught up in that, be different from that. And then number four, he mentions not pilfering or not stealing. Now, most of you say, well, I don't do that. I would never do that. But let me ask you a question. Do you ever take anything from your company without asking? Ever take something home that you just think, oh, they won't miss this. It's no big deal. That's stealing. Or do you ever leave early or come in late without asking and because your salary, no one ever knows it? That's stealing. We need to be honest about this if we're to be the type of workers that God wants us to be. And then finally he says, but showing all good fidelity, and that means being trustworthy. And when I read this, I couldn't help but think of Joseph. Joseph was a guy that it seemed like everywhere he went, people liked having him around. He's sold as a slave. He gets sold to a guy named Potiphar. And pretty soon, Potiphar has him over everything because he trusts him. He trusts him even with his own wife. He's the one that's watching over the whole household because he trusts him. Well, his wife, you guys know the story, ends up falsely accusing him. He gets put in prison. And pretty soon, he's over the whole prison. And then we see later on that he ends up being over all of Egypt, second in command. He was trustworthy. And that's the kind of guy that you want to be, is that someone that your boss, and, and, and it carries over because the way that we are out there is going to affect the way that we are in here. So you become someone that others here that are in leadership can look at and go, that guy's trustworthy, he's reliable. That's the idea. Somebody who can be counted on. Be that kind of worker who is working in a way of knowing that, hey, Jesus is my boss. He's the one that's watching, and I'm going to be working for him. And then notice the purpose in all of this. This is the third time that he's mentioned something in these first 10 verses to this degree, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. In other words, the way that you work, the way that you are at work can be an example and a blessing and a testimony to those who are uh, watching you of the gospel. And so we could wrap this all up, this section in this way, that sound doctrine, when applied, that's the key, when applied, because knowledge is not, you know, it's not good just to have knowledge. Sound doctrine, when applied, equals sound behavior that can then result in a sound witness. Healthy doctrine, when applied, results in healthy behavior that can then result in a healthy witness to where God is glorified in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for this portion of Scripture that we're looking at tonight. And thank you, God, for um, just the example that you give us. 
as older men to come alongside, to walk with the younger guys, to help them um, to be sober-minded, clear-headed, to encourage their zeal, but also to help them to grow in their knowledge. And God, I pray that you would help us all here as men who aspire to be used by you, to be those whose, whose life would match our testimony, that our confession of you would weigh as much, that our conduct would weigh as much as our profession. And Lord, I pray for each of these guys, be they employers or employees in the workplace, that God, you would um, be using them to be the type of workers that others love to have, that love to be around, those who are speaking life and bringing life into conversations. And Lord, I pray that we would be those type of men here as well, trustworthy, stewards of what you have given us in this great salvation that you've given us to steward, in the word of God that you've given us to steward, and then in ministry opportunities that you've given us to steward. And so I pray now that you would just bless and be in our time of discussion. In Jesus' name, amen.